Well, today I'm going to finish up the message from last week. Uh, There was so much in the book of Proverbs regarding this area of mining your money. Now, back in December, there was a change in a very famous basketball arena. The the place where the Lakers and LA Clippers played is called the Staples Arena. And in December, it changed its name to Crypto.com Arena. And what it signaled at that time, some of you think, what in the world is that? Something, when it's cryptic, sounds mysterious. And by the way, a crypt is a burial vault beneath a church. So it doesn't sound real good. Crypto.com, what's, what is that all about? Well, it's a signal that cryptocurrency is a big deal. It's a big deal. There are millions of people involved in cryptocurrency. So if you don't know what that is, it's a new form of currency in the last several years that's digital. You don't have anything tangible to hold on to. It's not like you hold on to gold or have a dollar bill. It's all electronic. You have an electronic wallet that you manage your payments and transactions through. Now, you may have heard of Bitcoin. That's one example. Ethereum is another one. Dogecoin is another, which is really interesting because the creators of Dogecoin did it as a joke. It's, it's dog e-coin. It's, it's, it's got a picture of a dog on it. And they just kind of like, we're just going to come up with our own money like Monopoly and see what happens. And it's actually become a serious thing. People actually are trading and investing in Dogecoin. Now, you may say, oh, pastor, I have no interest ever in doing anything like that because it's not government insured. It's not backed by our government. It doesn't have the FDIC behind it. It's not regulated. And the values go up and down very dramatically at times. And you may say, like, I have no interest in that. But you need to know that it is something that's going to be bigger and bigger and probably something at some point you may have to get involved in. In March of this year, our president signed an executive order to have our federal government look into establishing a government-backed digital currency. Now, some of you may say, like, ooh, that's scary, but we're, we're halfway there already. Most of us, especially, especially younger generation, don't carry bills and coins around in your pocket or wallet anymore. You don't write checks anymore. Most of your transactions are done online. And so we're, we're actually doing a lot of that already. And the forms of currency over history have changed. We looked last week in the book of Proverbs. The currency in those days, they didn't have printed bills. They didn't have credit cards, but they had land and they had animals and they had crops. If you're rich, you had gold and you had silver. If you're really rich, you actually had something else that was of value, perfumes, ointments, spices. Those were things the rich people held. Not only does currency change over time, but the value of that currency changes too. What what buys something in one generation won't buy the same thing in another generation. We could just take, like, if you took $100 today and went to the grocery store compared to going three years ago, you can't get as much grocery, can you? You can't buy as much gas as you could back then. Currency changes. Some of you may remember that legend that George Washington was so strong that he took a silver dollar and he flung it across the Potomac River. Now, that could never happen today. Number one, our president doesn't have that strong of an arm. But here's the bigger reason. Money doesn't go that far today. That's right, right? Seriously, money really doesn't go that far today. That's why we're actually looking at this subject. Because the Bible, that's what I love about the Bible. It speaks to practical issues. Marriage, business. Our thought life, our goals, our finances. Now, people sometimes say, well, the church is always talking about money. We're always talking about money in our house. (laughs) You're spending it. You're earning it. You're saving it. You're investing it. You're doing something with money all the time. It is a big part of our lives. And so for the Bible to speak on it is a blessing that God would actually take time in Scripture to say, hey, 
This is, this is a big part of your life. I've got some wisdom, and in fact, God's wisdom is different than the cultural wisdom that you'll hear. Money will either display your relationship with God, or it will disrupt your relationship with God. One or the other. Either it will display your relationship with God, who's really Lord of your life, how, who's directing the affairs of your life, or it'll become something that's like a wedge. It's going to disrupt your relationship with the Lord. It's going to create temptations and distractions from your relationship with Him. That's why I shared last week this theme, money is a spiritual issue, so handle it carefully. It is a spiritual issue. Money itself isn't spiritual, but what it does to us and what we do with it can definitely be spiritual. So last week, we looked at three of the first principles that come out of the book of Proverbs. If you remember, Solomon was the richest man in the world at his day. He was also the wisest man in the world. Gave us a lot of great insight into how to take care of money, how to mind our money. And first, we talk about managing it, our attitude toward it. We need to pay attention to our financial condition. That's smart, but obsessing over money is idolatry. See, we need to realize it is something important, but it's not all important. It's not the biggest thing. It's not what makes you happy in life. Secondly, we talked about earning it, that money is good, but if that's your biggest goal, you're foolish. I mean, we could work ourselves to death. We can always be motivated by more money, more money. If I work more, if I, if I have extra hours, if I would win the lottery, if I could just parlay some money, if I, you know, if I could do that, if I could gamble a little bit, and Scripture says, you know, don't be foolish. Do it the old-fashioned way. Diligent labor, God rewards but be careful you don't overdo it. And then thirdly, we talked about borrowing it. Borrowing money gives a temporary sense of freedom, but in the long term, it actually robs and steals from you, enslaves you. Remember, Proverbs says, the borrower is slave to the lender. And it's so easy in our culture to get a credit card, to get a loan, so easy to get that, so easy to take out credit. But over the course of time, it actually starts to bind us. Like it, it restricts our ability to be free and do the things we really want to do because, because we're so trapped up in, in credit debt and then paying those high interest rates, especially on credit cards. So today we're going to look at three more principles, practical principles found in the book of Proverbs. And so this next one actually is our favorite one probably, spending it. Spending it. We love to spend it. Who doesn't like to shop? Now, I don't like to shop as much as my wife does, but she likes to shop at places that are, that are different than I like to shop. She likes to shop at Ross and Kohl's and home, you know, home stores and, and things for the house. And I like to shop at Lowe's. I can spend hours in home improvement stores, look at the new gadgets, new power tools, New kinds of lumber, flooring. I mean, all that stuff fascinates me. I like that kind of stuff. I could spend hours and hours and, and lots of dollars buying stuff at a home improvement store. I also like bookstores. I could go into Mardell's and spend hours and go, man, that's a good book. Oh, I want to read that book. I, oh, that's a good book. I love that author. And pretty soon I'm collecting all these books. I've got a library full of books. I like spending books. You probably like spending some way. Maybe you like buying gifts. Maybe you like spending it on services, manicures, pedicures, hairstylists. Maybe it's going to the movies, going to ball games. We all like to spend money on different things. When we were in Branson last month, we had a family group that, that was bragging that they were going to go on the, I think it was the world's fastest zip line. This thing goes like 40, 45 miles an hour and only lasts less than a minute. I said, how much does that cost? And he says, $35. I said, how many times do you get to go? He goes, once. I went, oh my goodness. $35 in a minute, that's pretty fast. And he said, oh, the whole family's going to go, which was like seven of them. And I thought, whew, while they're zipping down that line, before they get to the end, uh, hundreds of dollars have been zapped out of, their, out of their bank account. 
I mean, money can travel faster than a zip line, right? I can make a credit card payment and within a second or two, it pops up on my phone, this charge. Like, bing, there it is. Like, that was fast. And you all know how money flies fast. When I was a kid, my mom used to always say, son, your allowance burns a hole in your pocket. You know, every time I got paid for allowance, we'd get a quarter every week. I would go immediately go right up to the grocery store, Skelly's supermarket, and I'd go to the candy counter, and I could get five pieces of candy, like, like Snickers bars, Nessie's Crunch bars, Chuckles, I mean, Reese's Pieces, all this kind of, not pieces, Reese's cups. And so I'd get all this stuff, I'd get five things of candy for 25 cents, and I would blow up that quickly and then eat it that night. I mean, it just burned a hole in my pocket. And as I got older, you know, I started, I'd buy music and I'd buy cassette tapes and 45s and all sorts of things. But when I really wanted something um, good, I'd have to save up for it. See, if, if, you, if you seek pleasure in your spending, there's a danger. It says in Proverbs, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. If we're not disciplined, if pleasure drives our spending, we will definitely find ourselves in a very difficult spot because there's no end to pleasure, Right? There's always something fun to do, always something to buy that would make life a little more fun. And sometimes we rationalize that, a purchase by saying, well, I deserve that. Or we may say to someone else, like, you know what, I know we couldn't afford it, but you deserve it. Now, it's kind of cute. Like, yeah, honey, we, couldn't, we can't really afford this, this vehicle, but man, you deserve it. And so, so we're going to go into massive debt for you to deserve this. We should be asking ourselves, yes. You deserve it, but can we afford it? Because we're going to go into bondage over this thing if we're not careful. That's the question. Can we afford it now? Pleasure sometimes has to be postponed. It's called delayed gratification. It's one of the great motivators, actually, for saving. When I was a kid and uh, I knew I didn't want my mom to keep driving me to work. I was 16 years old. Mom would have to drive me to my job at Kmart. You know, to have your mom pull up and you get out of the car. You're in you're high school and your peers have cars and you're having mom drop you off, kind of embarrassing. So I knew this, I gotta save up money to get my own car. And it took several, several months of saving up, but I had a goal. I said, if I can get to $1,000, then, then I'm gonna start looking seriously for a vehicle. The Friday I hit $1,000 in that bank account, that night I went out and bought a car. And actually, I came across a picture of it yesterday. This is a 1965 Ford Fairlane, sweet car, until um, I got my accident two years later and totaled it. But, but you know what? It's motivating to save up to get it. What's not motivating is to take a loan out and just keep making payments for the next two years because I already have it. There's nothing to look forward to. It's a motivating factor for, for us, especially for your children to say, hey, save up for it. And it's not always our personal pleasure that drives us to overspend. It's the image we convey to other people. I remember Dave Ramsey says, uh, we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people that don't care about us. And ain't that the truth? That sometimes we buy things as status symbols. I mean, you, wanna, you really want to walk around with a generic brand of jeans or shoes or a used car? You know, you, you want something that has status. You know, I want the I, iPhone. I want, I want Nike Air Jordans. I want you know, this kind of car, I want this kind of house, I want to be seen as this kind of person. We give this impression of, I'm, I'm well off, I'm cool, you know, I'm, I'm up to speed, I'm keeping up with everybody else, but in the process, we're going into massive debt, and we're really bondaging ourselves to our lenders. Do you know that the, often 
Sometimes it's the, it's the poorer ones of us that do that. And often it's those who are rich who actually don't do that. They do the opposite. It says in Proverbs, one pretends to be rich yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor and has great wealth. You may have never heard of this guy's name, Ing- Ingvar Kamprad. He's the founder of Ikea. You know what Ikea is? Specialty store, has very unique products, very cool products, one of the wealthiest men in the world. His nickname, Uncle Scrooge. Why? Because he drives a used Volvo and he always flies a coach class when he's in an airplane. Can he afford more? Definitely. But he doesn't. He's a penny pincher. So is Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, also one of the wealthiest men in the world, still lives in the home he bought in Omaha in 1958 for $31,500. He drives a 2014 Cadillac XTS to work. He doesn't splurge on himself, but you know what? He's a generous man. He's committed 99% of his wealth that after he dies will go to charity. See, oftentimes the people who are rich don't live like it. That's part of the reason why they're rich is they're very guarded in what they spend. See, money can buy a lot of things. It can give us a lot of experiences. It can buy a lot of objects, but here's some things it can't buy. It cannot buy relationships. You can attract friends, but money won't purchase you good friends. It can finance a wonderful date, but it can't buy you a devoted spouse. There are many intangibles that money could never buy. In fact, Solomon goes on to say, there are things that neither gold, silver, or jewels is of superior value to. There are things that money could never buy that those things can't touch. And he lists them. He says, wisdom, honesty, righteousness, a good name, the fear of the Lord. Now think about that list of things I just quoted. Those are things our culture doesn't hold in high esteem. Wisdom, fear of the Lord, righteousness? No. But God says those are things that are of high value, a good name. And your money can never buy that, but God can give you those things. Be careful we don't adopt the values of the world because it's passing away. John writes in his letter in, in uh, second John, or 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God lasts forever. So, so don't buy into these values of the world, you know, go into debt, impress your neighbor, you know, all these sorts of things. Our value is found in the Lord, the best things money can never buy. So spending is fun, but I'll tell you something that's even more fun, giving, giving. Let's talk about giving it. Having money is a blessing, but giving it brings a greater blessing. Didn't Jesus himself say it is more blessed to what? Give than to what? Receive. It is more blessed, meaning it's a blessing to, get, to receive. It's even greater blessing to give. That's what Solomon says in the third chapter. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Give to the Lord the first fruits, the first portion, which doesn't make logical sense because I've got bills to pay. I've got some things I'd like to do with my money. And isn't it better to do all that first and then see what I have left over to see what I could give to God? I mean, doesn't God want me to be a responsible person to pay my mortgage and pay my bills and pay my credit cards? And, and surely God wants me to have a little bit of fun to eat out now and then and maybe have a nice cell phone and data plan and Hulu and Amazon Prime. And I mean, surely God understands all that, doesn't he? And then, and then I'll give what I have left. 
But you see the, the, the faultiness in that logic? That when God gets the leftovers, God is usually left out. See, here's what first fruit giving does. When you give God the first portion, number one, it makes God priority. It says you're first. It says my mortgage isn't first. My utilities aren't first. My car payment's not first. My subscriptions aren't first. My own eating out is not first. God's first. I know it came from him. I know he needs to be honored in it. See, it's so easy to come up with excuses of why God gets the leftovers. Now, here's the good news. I don't believe God's feelings are hurt over it. I don't think God's crying when we aren't faithful giving him the first part. But here's the bad news. The bad news is what it says about us. Because if Jesus is who we claim him to be, he's Lord of my life, meaning he's over everything, then it'll show in how I live. And it'll show my giving. And if I'm giving God the leftovers, if I'm giving God the last priority, we're already saying, God, you're the last priority in my life. I've got other things that are more important than you. But when you put God first, it's saying, you are first. You are Lord. I know where this came from. I know who's going to provide it in the future, and it's you. So why wouldn't I want to honor you first? It's an act of honor. Honor the Lord with the first fruits, it says. He should hold the highest place in everything in our lives. It makes God priority. Here's what else it does. It makes faith practical. It's easy to say you believe. And in fact, just a few verses before this is this great passage where Solomon says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. So how do you do that? How do you trust in the Lord with all your heart? Here's a great example. Do it in your giving. Trust God. It's an act of faith to give the first part because especially in biblical times, when you gave God the first part, usually it was your crops or it was an animal, you were actually sacrificing potential for the future. Like if you gave one of your animals, logic says, no, keep it because that animal can produce more and multiply. Or those crops could produce seeds that could be planted and produce more that surely God would be honored by me multiplying what I have. And God says, no, I know that sounds logical, but what's really logical is to plant seeds with me first. Plant seeds of faith with me first. Trust me first. I am where it comes from. I can do things beyond your imagination if you learn to trust me. So giving the first portion, which we often call the tithe, their first fruits, a little bit different, but they're very similar. In fact, they're giving God at the beginning, not the end. It shows we believe he's the source and we trust him for the future. It also makes room for more. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth and first fruits. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. Your, your vats will be bursting with wine. If we honor him, he will pour blessing back to us. And this is something we find repeated by many writers of Scripture. In Malachi, he says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. And if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. You can't give more than what God will give back to you. Then Luke writes in his gospel, words of Jesus, given will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church, says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Do you see a pattern there? You give, God gives back, but even more. God blesses you in your generosity. Now, here's one of the blessings that comes back to us. When you give to God, you give to something that's lasting. You give to something that's enduring. We all spend money on a lot of places. And honestly, 
I'm going to look back at my life and recognize how many thousands of dollars I spent on cable bills, cell phones, all kinds of things that in the end make no difference at all. But the things that I've given, like to build a church building like this, where actually people come to worship the living God. Isn't that a great thing? To build an education wing where children can learn the scriptures and that God cares about them. That's a beautiful thing. To, to invest in a care center and the ministries that, that flow out of that care center to meet needs of the people in this community. To be able to give to a missionary that's on the field and support their work in another country. To help someone pay an electric bill. I mean, all those are wonderful things. Those are things that really make an eternal difference. It says again in Proverbs 11, one gives freely and grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and suffers only want. God doesn't send us a bill, doesn't, doesn't give us an invoice every month. I know there's some churches that really pressure people. In fact, we used to live in a neighborhood. There's a certain kind of church that really pretty much expected everybody in that church to tithe. In fact, if you didn't, the bishop would show up at your door saying, hey, you've fallen behind in your tithe payments. Payments. And they said, if you're going to be a good of this, this sort of Christian, that you need to be faithful in your giving. Um, that takes away what I believe God wants is, is this freedom and cheerfulness. God loves a cheerful giver. He wants us to give out of the generosity of our heart. Because the closer we get to God, here's what happens. We become more like Him. God is a giver. For God so loved the world, what did He do? Gave. Gave His one and only Son. Jesus came to earth, and what did He do? He gave His life on the cross. What does He give to us? Salvation, forgiveness of sins. He puts the Holy Spirit in us, and what does the Holy Spirit do? He keeps giving. Peace and love and joy, comfort. God's a giver. Closer you get to God, you cannot help but be a more generous person. It's just natural. Generosity flows out of our relationship with the Lord. That's why I love the fact that every Sunday we actually make time in the service to give. It's not that you're getting a bill. It's not that dues are owed. It's I want to I bless the Lord, and I want to be blessed by the Lord. And we give in the church, but we also are generous outside the church. It says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. You cannot go hard to any place in Colorado Springs anymore without seeing someone who's poor. You can go up on the Mesa, go by Sonic. There's someone with a cardboard sign asking for help. Now, I know sometimes that pulls at our hearts. We're conflicted. We don't know. Are they going to go blow the money on cigarettes and alcohol, drugs? I have no clue what they're going to do. And, and some of you have just decided, like, I'm just going to give and let God be responsible. And that's an okay approach. But, but I love the fact that we have a care center that you can give to that actually sits down and talks with people, finds out what they're doing and how they are managing their money, how they're trying to get their life together, the role that God plays in their life. And so when we give through our care center and they allocate food from the food pantry, money to pay electric bills or help them with their rent, we know that it's, it, they're being wise stewards of that money. We have an obligation to take care of the poor around us. That's why we're having this event called the Backpack Bash next Saturday. How many of you are going to help volunteer? We've got like, like 100 people in our church volunteered to help for that event. It's going to be a great day because our community is coming out. And you know from living in our community, a lot of people have trouble making ends meet. And so these kids are going to get a backpack full of supplies and food and all kinds of goodies. And it's going to save them a lot of money. 
It's because we're helping them. And thank you for all of you who not, not only are donating time, but have given to that physical, tangible things. There's also an aspect of giving where we actually look to the future generations. Solomon says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I love that because you bypass your kids. Go right to the grandkids. <laughs> I love my grandkids. And Julie and I have talked a lot about this. Here's, here's our plan. We want, we want to die with almost nothing left because we'd rather spend it on things we can see now, like help pay for their education, help, help them go to Christian camps, make sure they have a Bible, help them in ways. Maybe at some point we may help, help them put a down payment on a house, set them up. See, so often when people die, they give a large chunk of money to someone and they inherit it and they go and blow it. I love what Ron Blue, financial advisor, used to say, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. I'd rather know where it's going. I want to I invest well in my grandkids to set them up for a, for a great relationship, hopefully, with the Lord. Be a, be a giver. Be a generous giver. And then finally, saving it, saving it. Storing up for the future is necessary, but no amount will give ultimate security. One of the wisest financial decisions you can make is just setting up a savings account and prepare for emergencies and long-term needs. I remember back when I was in grade school. This happened the first few years and then it kind of faded away. But we used to have an announcement on the loudspeaker that all the kids who wanted to invest in savings bonds could go down the hall and meet at a certain room and you'd take your dollar bills and you'd get little stickers that you could put in your book. Any of you remember that? I actually have a book at home I just found this week. I've got a sticker in this book that it was teaching us to invest in U.S. savings bonds. It was a way of saving for the future. Our public school actually encouraged it. Well, we don't teach kids today how to be good money managers anymore, specifically how to save, but Scripture's big on this. Solomon says, learn from the ant who's wise during the harvest season to store up food for the future. Part of a good plan is saving a little bit each month that over the course of time we accumulate a lot. You may have heard the 10-10-80 principle. 10% to God, 10% to savings, 80% to live on. It's a good financial guideline. It says that wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. There's this process of just keep saving up little, little bit at a time, accumulates with interest over the course to be a lot. There's a story in the Old Testament of Joseph who interpreted the dreams of the Pharaoh who had this, uh, these two weird dreams of, of some starvation and, and, and then some abundance. And when Joseph interpreted these dreams, he says, God's telling you what's coming. There are going to be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. And therefore, you need to be prepared for that. And Pharaoh says, Joseph, please help us. Be the man to organize the system to, to do that for us. So Joseph set up in all the different cities in Egypt collection sites where people would bring their grain. They would bring 20% of their harvest they would dump it there, and it says uh, in the Bible, he got so much grain, they couldn't even measure it anymore. Seven years of 20% a year. So that when the seven years of famine came, he could draw from that grain, met all the needs of the Egyptians, including the needs of many of the surrounding areas that would come to Egypt to get grain. Save because you never know what's coming in the future. You can't predict what kind of surgery you might need. What kind of tragedy might befall you? Uh, what may happen to your house? Uh, what may fluctuate with the economy? You don't know, so you need to save up for the future. Yet no amount of saving can give you ultimate peace of mind. It says in 1811 of Proverbs, a rich man's wealth is a strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. 
Meaning you can save up so much and think, I'm protected, I'm good, got it covered, got my 401k, got my 403b, I am in a very good place. Jesus once told a story of a man who thought like that. He was a rich farmer, had a bumper crop one year. He, it was so big he had to tear down his barns, built bigger barns, and he put all this stuff in storage in his bigger barns and says, ha, I got so much now, can't believe the increase this year. I think I'm just going to retire, kick back, and enjoy it the rest of my life. And in this story that Jesus tells, God visits this man at night and says, tonight your life is required of you. You're not going to get to enjoy this. Someone else will. And when Jesus then summarizes what the moral of the story was, he says this, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up for himself but is not rich toward God. The fault wasn't he was saving up. The problem was he saved up for himself. The purpose of his saving was just to make life easy for him. It's so common in our culture for people to look at retirement of, how can I provide for my future so I can take it easy? And we should be saying, how can I save for the future so I can continue to serve God with my life? It's not about saving money, ultimately. It's about saving souls. It's about saving souls. Because you cannot take your money to heaven. Your gold won't go with you. Your Bitcoin won't be transferred electronically to heaven. None of it's going to go. But you know what can go to heaven? People that you've impacted for Jesus. If you save a soul, this young man like Hayden gave his life to Christ today. When I see him in heaven, I'm going to say, wow, the investment in that man was worth it. There will be people in your life that, that you want to invest in because because your, your money's not going to mean anything in heaven, but it's a tool that God allows us to use right here. Our ultimate security is not in our savings. It's in the Lord. That's why even our coinage says, in God, not government, not money, in God we trust. It says, whoever trusts in his riches will fail, and riches do not last forever. Refuse to be mesmerized by the allure of money and its power and choose to make it serve a higher purpose. Do not be mastered by money, but master your money. Riches, it says, do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Bill Gates is worth $100 billion. $100 billion. I can't get my head wrapped around a million hundred million would be a lot. A hundred billion? That's, that's just mind-boggling. hundred billion dollars, surely that can buy you something really great. But you know, Bill Gates could not open the pearly gates with that money. A hundred billion will not open those gates for you. The only thing that will open the doors of heaven for you is something that you could never bring to the table. You know what the currency that was required to open those gates was? Pure, precious blood that Jesus gave on the cross. And that's what opens the gates of heaven. Jesus, the only righteous one, only one perfectly obedient to God, gave his life as a sacrifice for us to pay the ultimate price so that we could be forgiven and have access to heaven. No amount of money will save you in the day of wrath, but, but the righteousness that comes from Christ will. It's righteousness that delivers us from death. And when you surrender your life from, to Jesus, you, you lay hold of the most precious thing you've had ever, 
because the blood of Christ now paves the way for you into eternity. It's not about how much we have or what we save for the future, but Jesus saving us for the future and being with him and bringing others with us. And that's my ultimate prayer in managing our money. So we would honor God in it and live in such a way that we are helping more people more often say yes to God. That's what it's for. We, we, we don't look at how much do I need for me to make my life comfortable? How much do I need to make me happy? You know, God, God makes us happy. It's happy blessing others. It's happy to give to others. It's happy leading other people to Jesus. And I'll tell you, it's eternally rewarding to do something like that. So let's honor God in our giving. And maybe over the last week or two, this week and last week, as you, as you looked at even your own life, we're all dealing with money, as I said, we're all talking about it all the time. Is there some area the Holy Spirit's maybe pricked your heart to say, you know what, you need to change your attitude about that. You need to step back of, of what, you're getting consumed with your thoughts of money. Or you're putting, you're worrying too much about it. Or you're giving too much power to it. Or maybe you have a, a bad attitude about giving. And, and God's trying to teach you some new habits and some new disciplines in your life. He wants what's good for you. He wants to bless you. God will never ask you more, for more than what he promises to give to you. He's always giving us more than we ever give to him. And it all starts with giving him our heart, our life. If you've never done that, today's a day to do that. Today's a day to say, you know what? I need to take care of the biggest issue in my life. My relationship with God, that's where this all starts. Making him a Lord of my life, my finances, my future.